I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Happy New Year, podcast fans, and welcome to Total Football. After approximately 3,600 minutes of decreasingly festive Premier League football, you will be forgiven for feeling a little bit lost. But don't worry, we're back at work here on Total Football and ready to unpick everything that's happened since the turkey leftovers finally ran out. Today, who were the winners and losers from the questionable plan to force every team to play 15 times each over 14 days? Which clubs have had festive periods to remember? And who is lying curled in a fetal position, weeping in a cold, dark room? Metaphorically. We'll speak to a former Premier League referee about the strain placed on officials at this time of year and whether that causes an increase in incorrect decisions. Plus, a trip to wonderful Merseyside and a chat with our man on the ground, Chris Bascom, about the upcoming FA Cup third round meeting between Liverpool and Everton. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our chief football writer, Sam Wallace. Sam, how are you? Hello, Tom. I'm fine. 2018 so far for you? Very good. It's, it's all going to plan. Yes. Yeah. A World Cup year, what more could you possibly ask for? Exactly, and uh, I think that it's a World Cup year like, uh, we keep saying this about every World Cup, but like none other. But um, uh, I, the, the Russian one will certainly will certainly be a challenge that, that of the like we've not seen before, I think. Let's keep it domestic for now, Sam. There's been more football than we've known what to do with since our last podcast a week ago. Which stories have stuck out to you the most in the last seven days? Well, I think it's been about Manchester United mainly. I think that, that, their, that their run of um, results starting... Uh, obviously, with that that um, League Cup defeat to Bristol, and then they had the uh, three draws in a row uh, before they beat Everton. So, uh, although City haven't picked up maximum points along the way, I mean, we go into a new year with without really a title race anymore. I mean, it it, it would be the most extraordinary turnaround uh, for Manchester City to throw this lead away. So, I feel that <clears throat> that 2018 is going to be about looking at who comes off the best of the clubs that aren't going to win the league. And at the moment, the one, the, the club and, and certainly Jose Mourinho, the individual, is the one who is who is copying the most criticism um, for failing to put up a fight, really. Mm. They did seem to click into gear a little bit in the second half of that Everton win at Goodison Park. What a change for them to make that uh, a little bit of a step up from how they have been playing. You look at the players that have probably had the best kind of Christmas period for United, you're looking at Jesse Lingard, who perhaps a year ago was no one's idea of the of the saviour. I, I think Credit to Mourinho there, right? And and to Van Gaal, to be honest. I think I think Van Gaal did did pave the way for the... He made them first-team players. Obviously, Marino still picks them, has to pick them. Lingard's, Lingard's development, he's, he's less spectacular than Rashford's, obviously. Uh, and 
and there's been some peaks and troughs along the way. But I think he's a he has he has been able to take his opportunity, and I think the sort of chaos of the if that's the right if if that's fair, and I think it is the occasional chaos of the post Ferguson years has meant that that spaces have opened up for these players, which has been a has been a, 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 a happy consequence of a difficult few years at the club. We'll get back to United and Jose Mourinho a little bit later. Uh, elsewhere in the league, very difficult night for Morata against Arsenal on Wednesday in that tool draw. Missed a hat-trick of uh, fairly presentable chances. What, what's going on with him? Do you think he's in need of a rest or is it something more worrying? I think Morata did, did what other strikers who have had similarly big moves to Chelsea failed to do. He started very well. So um, when you look at um, Torres or to a lesser extent Shevchenko the problem they, they never really seemed to get up and running did they and I think Morata has done that uh, I think the problem in that game was that he just was that the chances were so good weren't they and he didn't certainly when he tried to lob check at the end it never looked like he was going to score the first one was especially worrying there wasn't it yeah, really, really it was, dragged it was it. do you think those, that was playing on his mind for the rest of the game it was so wide wasn't it you don't, you don't see players miss by that kind of margin, not unless you watch most of your football at Loftus Road. <laughs> and I think that there was there's always a danger when it becomes when when it, when it becomes sort of a comical element to it. There's this familiar problem at the top of the Premier League that there's only four Champions League spots and there's six teams realistically and with quite a good shout. Who do you think's missing out as it stands? I said from the start of the season I felt that Arsenal would, and I know that's uh, given that they did last season. I, I think. Um, they're, you know they're in sixth place as things stand. Although it is tight, I mean there's only um, there's only eight points between second down to sixth. Uh, it's a really difficult one to call. Tottenham were the one that always at the start of the season I felt because they hadn't they they'd finished third and then second and then they hadn't lost anyone either. You thought in any other in any other period of football history, certainly in the 1980s, the, the natural they were they you know they would win the title and and they've slipped further and further back. At the moment, I feel that if it's between them and Liverpool, Liverpool have got that strength. But I'm go- so I'm going to go with the top four as it is. Although I think Chelsea will finish second. I think they'll finish above United. Yeah, they certainly seem to be the coming team at the moment. What about the teams doing less well? Uh, Southampton look dreadful. What's what's going on there? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think with Southampton, the um, the problem has been has been the goals. So uh, Charlie Austin did go through a decent period and then he was injured and suspended. But watching them at, at Old Trafford, for instance, which is never an easy place for an away team to play, um, you just felt that that, that was the problem. I, I actually I actually don't think there's too much wrong with them. As, a, as a, I think they have top 10 players. It looks like Pellegrino has struggled to get his message across and it hasn't helped that Claude Puel has, well, hasn't sort of helped the sh- this reputation for sure-footedness that Southampton have that Claude Puel's done so well at Leicester um, but I think the quality of the players I, I don't imagine that they will panic they, 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 are, they tend to be a summer trading club I know they bought Austin in, in, in January uh, a few years back yeah I, I, I think that the players are too good I think that, I think that the quality is too high for them to, to go down but I think they might be faced with another decision this summer about whether they keep their management. West Ham also in fantastic form in recent weeks. Uh, what's David Moyes done there to to bring about such a change? Uh, I watched them against Chelsea when they beat Chelsea. And it just felt to me that they... I mean, Chelsea had a bad day and they took advantage of it. And they were solid and and reasonably well organised. And I, I don't think they... I, I didn't see much evidence of that under Bilic. And I think, you know, he would always point to... 
to unlucky decisions and things that didn't go his way. But I think that's often a, a corollary of a side that's not particularly well organised. And and you look, it helps to have. I don't think you can rely on Andy Carroll, but when when he gets you two goals and wins a match, then then that's obviously that you know that's a bonus. But I, I kind of see a bit of a Moyes Renaissance here. You know, I think strangely, I mean, I was unconvinced um, because he seemed so downbeat last season at Southampton at Sunderland. But I think they quite they 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 fit they fit quite well. Although West Ham fans will probably disagree. <laughs> they seem to be enjoying themselves again. We did exaggerate slightly with the number of games in our introduction to the show, but uh, was this a little bit too much football this time around? What, what does it do to players to play so frequently? I think that we have a perception that it's more football because it's spread over. It, it's it, Because the games for TV purposes are, are not played in batches on the same day or the same night. Four Premier League games for each club in two weeks is quite unusual, though, isn't it? It's one more than last year. Yeah, it is. I think clubs have to decide themselves whether, you know, if this is still what they want. I mean, we defend it ferociously as our kind of English birthright that uh, we must be entertained by football over Christmas. Um, I, I think the, the exhaustion factor is always there, has always been there. Just clubs have a better way of measuring it now. They have whole departments set up to tell them that this is the absolutely the wrong thing to do to their players. I mean, as, as Jeremy Wilson has made the point in the paper... You know, the clubs are in control of this. The tender is out there for 2019, 2022 TV rights. So it can be stopped. Um, they just they just choose not to do it. And in this, in our content-driven world, <laughs> everyone needs and loves this content. And I don't know, I, don't, I just don't know how Sky and BT Sport would operate without this. I don't know, They you know, there's only so many times you can watch Michael Owen's 100 Premier League goals over the Christmas period. This is a time where they are absolutely crying out. I think the TV companies would really resist this. I think this is almost the most important part of of what it is they're buying because they've got people at home captive watching watching TV and it's great for advertising. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure none of the viewers are complaining very much. But do you think it makes injuries more likely? Two cruciate injuries for Palace against City uh, on New Year's Eve. Um, Lukaku, obviously a head injury as well. Not much you can really do about that. But these things do seem to happen more when the games come thick and fast. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, um, I don't think... I presume that the clubs know all this. I presume that they have the data on it and there's a reason that they're not releasing it. We did have that famous run of cruciate ligament injuries. I think it was maybe the start of last season, which was then blamed on something else. I think it was blamed on... on it, someone tried to pin it on the on the blade designs of football boots and uh, or the density of football pitches. I'm, I'm always slightly unconvinced by that, I have to say. Um, but uh, I, I think... You know the clubs will know, and it has not. The fact that it hasn't yet reached tipping point, that clubs don't seem to be saying privately or openly, we need to change this, would suggest that they that they still like the money that they get from the TV deals more than any any sort of um, consequences that come from playing this amount of games. Take that, Jason Punchin. Moving back on to Jose Mourinho, James Ducker had an exclusive in our paper on Thursday morning about a new contract being discussed for him at Manchester United. What's the latest you're hearing about that, Sam? Do we think he's going to get this new deal? I think they want to, uh, as things stand, they want to offer it to him. Um, but, I mean, uh, it feels to me that it's that it's it's reaching a point where it has to be decided sooner or later. So... Obviously, it looks like as things stand, United want to give him want to give Jose Mourinho a new deal. 
you can't let him go into the last season. I mean, it, it, it's I don't think he's ever been in into the last year of his contract, as far as I can remember. If you if you think of his last two contract renewals, so they've both come at Chelsea and Real Madrid at the end of his second season, in which he's won the league title. Um, barring a, 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 an incredible turnaround, he won't go into his third season as a as a league uh, a league title winner. So the decision is now, although. You know, he's only halfway through his contract. The decision is very much now for United because also if they want a replacement, then that has to start now and it, and it would be a messy business. I think they will take the option, the easier option of, of keeping him, but I'm not sure by the end of the season that will be the right decision. Not a massive extension to his current deal then? Well, I funny you say that. I mean, he, I mean, I'm sure that he will want that. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, in the past... I think there's there's one deal. I think the Chelsea deal that he got in 2015 was was actually due to run till 2019. You know, he got that in sort of August 2015 before the start of the season where it all fell apart. So yeah, I mean, I think he will assume that he that this time round he gets a longer deal or at least another three years. And you think that's just about status for him and presumably money? I think it, obviously. From a, a, an extended contract confers power and influence upon a manager, but I think it's it's also about um, it, it's about that that kind of yeah that cycle of the contract. So the fact that Wenger goes right down to the last few months is generally regarded as a bad way of doing it. That you get these things sorted out, and so he he would see if if you don't want to extend my contract, then by by that logic, you don't want me anymore. We've never been in that position with Marino. I mean, when he goes, he tends to go having signed a new contract and then it falls apart very, very quickly. So I I don't, that sort of slow bleed, I don't see how, I I don't see anything other than that being pretty disastrous for for the club. He just seems so unhappy though in in the last few months. It seems an odd thing to be agitating for, from a very, you know, from my very basic way of reading it, like, you don't want to stay somewhere if you're really unhappy, do you? I agree, and I think sometimes when you look back upon these things, the thing, the, the aspects that were dismissed as small or or um, marginal details at the time, make a difference. I still don't understand why he he doesn't live in he he continues to live in the hotel. What difference would it make if he was renting a flat? I think most managers accept that it can end very very quickly, but you have to go through the process of laying down roots because that all contributes towards the sense of permanence, that you're here for a long time, that you've got a long-term project, that you that you you want to encourage top players to come and sign for you and do the same thing. So although, you know, we all know, we all imagine the poor old Frank De Boer barely got his stuff out of the box before it was time to put it back in, I think I think you have to go through that process. And I think I think it says something pretty obvious to to people when you when you analyse it, is that I don't like this place or I don't think there's a place that's that's good enough for me and and also I can you know I can be out of here in 10 minutes. Has no one taken him to the northern quarter? <laughs> I think I think one of the problems I remember when he was being appointed was that the the, the nation was well he'll live in the city centre and I remember saying to someone well the city centre in Manchester is not it's not like it's not as big great you know great city they Manchester it's not a bigger city as London there's no kind of sort of Belgravia, where famous people can sort of disappear into their kind of enormous houses or big parks and things like that. So uh, he's never, you know, he doesn't seem to be interested in living in the normal sort of footballer belt outside to the south of the city. Um, but I, I, I mean, 
uh, people kind of feel this is a is a side issue or not important, but I, I tend to think it does. I think it says something about where his mind's at and, and, and what he you know what he thinks is important. And also, I think quite simply, Manchester has always had a problem attracting players, both clubs, City, you know, in their in their in their petrodollar years as well, because it's perceived as as rainy and well it is rainy and uh, and not as not as attractive a place to live as london so if you're if by extension your manager doesn't really fancy it then i think it that's the same and it, uh, yes i accept these are all small issues but i think they they tend to add up mm. and it doesn't add up to uh, if you're ed woodward thinking yes let's reward this person with a new contract does it, it just seems very strange to me a question shamelessly stolen by a colleague who asked you this in the office just before we came on. But uh, what would Ferguson have done uh, about Pep Guardiola? I think he would have complained quite a bit about the money that City have spent, and I think he he you saw that in and and with justification when Abramovich took over Chelsea, he he would he would point that out on a regular basis. I I don't know. I mean, Ferguson obviously changed from the sort of millennial Ferguson where he was at war with Wenger, I think he would have realised quite quickly that it's quite hard to get a reaction out of Guardiola. I mean, no one's actually really tried it, to be honest. I mean, Mourinho would be the obvious candidate, but um, no one else is quite on, on his level. He would certainly have questioned whether all the theories that, that Guardiola is reinventing football were true and probably would have tried to paint it as... He's just doing things that that others have tried in the past, and and football's cyclical, and we don't, you know, he's he's not the he's not the genius or the kind of messiah that everyone maybe uh, maybe portraying him as. But I think he would struggle with him. Of course, he would struggle with him, and he would recognise in him a, a man at his peak, a man at his, you know, very much in his time, because Ferguson had those years himself. It's January, so we are contractually obliged to talk a little bit about transfers. A few moves already, Van Dijk to Liverpool and Tolson to Everton that looks imminent as well. Which teams have got the most urgent needs for you, Sam, this, this window? I mean, Swansea is, is a really interesting one, isn't it? Uh, they, I think one of, the, one of the questions that was asked when they were, when they were casting around for a new manager was whether, whether they would throw money at the problem and whether they would, um, you know, whether they would be prepared to, to try and address some of the issues that, that they that they were left in the in the summer um what do you make of Carver how there I, th- I think it's uh, it's a, it's it's not what they said they were looking for so they said absolutely when when uh, Clement was sad that it had to be someone who knew the Premier League so the fact I mean then this doesn't reflect on Carvajal, it probably reflects more on Swansea that they um that they've already changed their brief which again you take it that they didn't really know what they were doing when they sat Clement um, but I mean they I mean Guilfi Sigurdsson was by far and away their, their best player they lost him and they haven't really got close to, to replacing him I think um, I think they will be reluctant to to gamble big money on, on keeping up I mean a, a Carver Howe is, is only there until the summer I think at the moment as well isn't he so it seems to me that they've not really that they've not that they that they are giving themselves a get out if it all goes wrong and they're not going to sort of bet the house on staying up. I mean, the other one is Newcastle. They're caught in this sort of takeover business, and um, it seems that that you know that they'd like another striker, but again, they just seem slightly paralysed by the who's going to be owning the club in six months' time. Robbie Keane back to Wolves, so that's a lovely feel good story, isn't it? 
Can you be a glory hunting player? I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I see what you mean. I mean, Robbie Keane at Wolves. I remember covering them when you know when he was scoring, covering games there when he when he was playing there. He and he was a brilliant. He felt it felt so exciting, you know, to have that sort of, also that kind of player at the, at that club, and they they knew they cherished him. They knew he wasn't he wasn't always going to be there. And I always remember the celebration. I mean, the celebration, the forward roll. I mean, once Nanny started doing sort of four or five <laughs> tumbles, it just felt like um, it really had been sort of uh, superseded. I don't know if he still does it. I would love to see it. I, I mean, if, if if he could still manage to get himself uh, down and over, I think it would. It would be. I think it would. It would be great to see. It's a penalty in 2018, I think. Former referee and resident expert for youarethereft.com, Keith Hackett, joins us now. Keith, we've been speaking about the effect of a busy schedule on teams and players in the Premier League, but how much impact does it have on referees when their workload is increased? Uh, the same. I think probably even more, to be honest. If we, if we look at the average age of a professional player, mid-20s, and then you look at how referees, they're more of them edging towards, if you like, that uh, mid forties, some late fifties, or, or or toward the fifty mark. So it does impact, and there are some differences. Albeit that the FA, the the PGMOL, who run the referees this year, made some allowances by saying to the referees on occasions they can use transport that they supply. In the main, referees are driving from you know all parts of the country. To, to actually officiate these games, they don't go on public. They don't go on trains, planes. They're having to drive backwards and forwards because of the transport situation in uh, in 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 the Christmas period. And what sort of impact will that have specifically, Keith? Is it mainly going to be a mental thing, or, or, or would you expect to see referees struggling to keep up with play, or do they have a base level of fitness that negates that? No, I think the fact that they're fit to pass a test, but their mobility is certainly tested in Premier League games. When we're looking at referees like Andre Marinos, about 48 now, 49, uh, Andre, over over the period of eight days, has had four appointments, and and three of those were in the middle, and and one is fourth official. And when when you look at the spread uh, of, of his appointments, then that again highlights the difficulty that uh, that he has as a referee. Keith, it's Sam Wallace here. Um, I'm just curious. Do, do small detail, but do, do referees have dispensation from PGMO to um, to stay in hotels the night before games? Well, that usually is the case um, on on most occasions. Now, I, I set that up when I was the general manager. That ideally. What we wanted was for the referee to drive to the hotel the night before a game, have a good night's sleep, and then also with his colleagues, you know, the team of officials, the two assistants, the fourth official, to be in a position to be well prepared, uh, to have a a pre-match instruction at the hotel before they're actually driven to the game. Uh, But when when you look at at someone like... uh, you know, Mariner is an example. On the 26th, he was at Watford as the fourth official. Now, now Andre lives in the Midlands, so he's he's gone to Watford. He's probably gone on the 25th. He's there to help officiate on the on the 26th. On the 27th, he's at Newcastle. 
So on that day that he's officiated as fourth official at Watford, he's now driving up to Newcastle. And then on the on the 28th, he's at Bournemouth as fourth official. And then on the 31st, he's at Everton. That is a, that is a real tour, that is. When, when a referee or a player goes through the demands of a Premier League game, and, and to get into some detail, you're expecting the referee to produce something like 11,500 metres in a game. And the expectation also is that over 1,000 metres of that is a high-speed running. So they're, they're doing, in effect, 7 metres per second. So the demands are there physically. Make no mistake. This is what further impacts dramatically on the referee. So physically, they become tired. And then, of course, mentally, because what the referee has to do is listen to what the security officers, you know, one hour, 15 minutes before the game, where the away spectators are going to be positioned in that stadium. And then one hour before kickoff, he's got to deal with the manager or coach coming in with the team sheets, ensuring that the colours are right, and I know we're at the professional level, but all these things are part of his administration duties as well as his actual aspects of refereeing. So it's not just a 90-minute game. And then after the game, he's got to listen to the match delegate, who is a former player or manager, giving him a, a debrief. And then 30 minutes after the end of the game, there's that knock on the door where there is an agreement with the LMA that the manager of the teams can come in and discuss and ask any question about what's taking place on the field of play. And sometimes you've got referees leaving the stadium after midnight. It's as simple as that, if the, if the game has been a bit of a problem. Certainly not in the mood to drive back from Newcastle to Bournemouth the following day then. Finally, Keith, Arsene Wenger extremely annoyed about a couple of recent decisions which have gone against Arsenal. What have you made of his recent comments? I, I just... I just feel that the relationship between the referee and the managers is failing. And, and one of the roles, when I was the boss of the PGMOL, in the role now held by Mike Riley, is to act as a conduit so that either you make a comment that supports the refereeing and analyzes why the decision is being given, or he withdraws that referee from the firing line for a game, not punishment, I think everybody deems that as punishment. Oh, we're going to take him off the game. Take him off the game so he doesn't have a couple of massive errors in a short period of time. Probably welcome for the rest as well, Keith. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Bobby Madley, Bobby Madley's had two indifferent games, two indifferent performances this week. And on Friday night, he's pitched into a Merseyside derby. Well, watch his performance with interest. Thank you very much for joining us, Keith. Pleasure. Thank you. Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Chris Bascom joins us now ahead of Friday night's meeting between Liverpool and Everton at Anfield. Chris, despite a plucky draw from Everton there recently in the league, this fixture at Anfield tends to mean a comfortable Liverpool win. Do you expect anything to change with a sprinkling of FA Cup third round magic? Well, it is always going to be a slightly different feel to the game in that, you know, the Everton fans are going to have the whole of that Anfield road behind, uh, you know, behind the goal, which, which just sort of creates a totally different sense 
you know, within the stages. But it's just a different feel of those cup games, isn't there? You know, especially with it being a derby. So, uh, you know, I think those Everton players will we'll feel the backing of their away support much more vociferously maybe than previous derbies. And it might be a bit old, more old school, the way the derbies of old used to be. I remember them as more of a mix of red and blue in both Goodison and Anfield derbies. But I think... I think everyone's kind of looking forward to this one as ever, you know, especially with an evening game. It's not any rare that you get these evening derbies anymore, you know. Again, you know, they always tend to be given these early afternoon kickoff slots, which are always really are atmosphere killers. So, yeah, I think I think it's one quite low-key build-up, but I think as we get closer to the game, there is a bit more sense of, you know, this could be a, you know, join the catalogue potentially epic cup history of the the Merseyside derby. Full strength teams, do you think, from both clubs? I think, from what my both manager was saying beforehand, as full strength as they can be. Clearly, there's some injury issues, and some advice has made the point that he doesn't actually know what his best side is. But you know, in terms of the biggest name, like you know, I would expect Rooney to be playing for Everton, and I think you know, for me, you know, for Liverpool, no Ike's and not not the mass rotation or introduction of you know several under-23 players that may have been the case in previous FA Cup early rounds. And we're expecting a debut for Virgil van Dijk on Friday night. Well, are we expecting it? I, I would personally be surprised if van Dijk does not make an appearance. I, I kind of feel this is almost an ideal game for him to come into because if you look at how the first or the, the, the most recent derby went with Liverpool pretty much having 70% or whatever of possession, you think for a centre-back... There's not going to be as much to do as you know. There might be Eddie, for example, make his debut against Man City in nine days' time. I don't mean that as disrespect to Evan. I just mean that as clearly how what, what challenge might be ahead for Van Dijk. I think he's might be a lot more time on the ball for him, and you know he could look good from clearing a few set pieces and maybe getting the end of a few attacking set pieces. And I would have thought it's an ideal game to introduce him actually. And it's not as though he's not been playing football for the last few months. And um, so I'd be very surprised if Van Dijk does not play. Emerging transfer saga in January mm. is, of course, Philippe Coutinho. Chris, what, what's the latest with his proposed move to Barcelona? Well, I suppose it depends what time we're recording. I mean, it changes by the minute, changes by the hour. It's a lot of supporters probably already a bit tired of it. And then only five days into this window. I mean, what's going to happen? I'd be very surprised, unfortunately, for Liverpool, if he's still a Liverpool player by the end of the month. Because the tone from Liverpool has utterly changed. Um, it was not so long ago. We were getting quotes from Jürgen Klopp, I think it was July the 31st, before the Audi Cup, trying to define the word not to uh, Barcelona when he was saying Bar- Casino was not for sale. And now Jürgen Klopp does not want to speak about it at all. He doesn't want to even answer questions. He doesn't want to, I think really be held to account all the comments he might make if he comes back to bite him in a few weeks' time should Coutinho go. I think there's a little bit of diplomacy for him as well because if he was to come out, I think, and say that under no circumstances will Coutinho go, maybe he's worried about what Coutinho's reaction to that might be in terms of, we know what happened in the last window, he suddenly you know, had a bad back and he didn't see him for a month. Um, but I also think that there's a there's a growing sense within Anfield that maybe there's a there's a losing battle here. We should also add that as we speak, we are not aware of any bid that has gone in for Coutinho. I mean, you know, again, I speaking on, you know, 30 minutes after Jurgen Klopp's press conference, and things may well have changed since. <laughs> but um, 
you know, I, I think Barcelona have got to sort of make their move and Liverpool consider all possibilities. And a lot of people are saying, oh, wouldn't it make sense to do a deal and keep Coutinho for six months? But that would be only possible to discuss once actually a bid has come in. Any option of selling to Barcelona now but having him loaned back to the end of the season? Well, as I say, that would be uh, the most sensible option, you would think. But it's, it's hard to even negotiate that until actually any offer comes in. You know, there's no, there's no been sort of discussing the terms of a deal with the club that hasn't actually put an offer in yet. Yeah, and, and I think obviously the issue is that is Phil Coutinho's dream is to play for Barcelona. And he's said in many interviews his idol was Ronaldinho. Since he was a little boy, he's wanted to play for Barcelona. And whilst obviously every Liverpool supporter just sees it purely through the eyes of a Liverpool supporter, how could you not want to play for Liverpool? How could you want to give up the Champions League? He wants to play for Barcelona. There's no change, you know, there's nothing going to change that fact. That is his dream move. And uh, Liverpool having to come to terms with that reality and do what's best for the club. Um, if, if they end up deciding that, you know, and if offer doesn't materialise, that is suitable, I'm sure that they will just stand the ground as they did in the summer. But you just get the feeling increasingly that Barcelona. Now they've been given that sort of chink of light that something could happen, they will do everything they can to make it happen. Everton, of course, have been in the transfer market as well. What can you tell us about Tosin, their new striker? Well, I can only tell you what Sam Allardyce has said about him. Um, you know, He's a guy who they've been monitoring for a long time. They don't believe that there are a lot of top-quality strikers out there in this market who they could have signed. And they come to the conclusion he is of the suitable pedigree. He's meant to be a bit of an all-rounder. Uh, he's got, you know, he scored goals in the Champions League. He can put himself about. Uh, Sam Allardyce was saying he may not be the, the, the tallest. I don't think he's a Kevin Davis type. But, you know, he, he can certainly put himself about and he's got a lot of strength. So, I think whenever you make these kind of signings, there's always a little bit of a risk in terms of whether the adaptation to the English football will be quick or not. He scored goals in the Champions League. And apparently he's Turkey's best striker. So, you know, you would hope that when Evans say this one is a coup, they're right. And uh, they certainly need something. If he can contribute even, you know, eight goals between now and the end of the season, maybe it'll help Everton finish in the top ten. Right, Chris, quick Merseyside derby FA Cup third round at Anfield prediction, please. Well, based on Liverpool being at home, based on the fact Klopp is going to pick a stronger side, I'd have to say Liverpool got the firepower to, to, to win the game we'll hold you to that Chris thanks for joining no us just time for your hero of the week and never let it be said that Total Football is an easily impressed digital audio product but we cannot overlook the work of Stelios Dimitriou of St Mirren the Cypriot fullback was the victim of a vicious assault on Tuesday with his team drawing one all at Morton he was hit with a missile from the stands a missile made of chocolate. Rather than tumbling theatrically to the ground like a very cold Scottish Championship version of Rivaldo, Stelios shrugged, picked up the chocolate bar, took a bite, then threw it away again. He said afterwards, maybe I could get a sponsorship deal from the company or the boys will bring me some selection boxes. We live in hope. That's your lot for Total Football this week. Contact me on Twitter at Tom with an H Gibbs if you've got any chocolate projectile stories to share with me before our next episode. We'll be back on Sunday night and ready for what should be your first Monday morning commute of the year. 
have I mentioned that you should subscribe to Total Football on iTunes and leave us a kind review? Well, if I haven't, I'm doing it now. Do these things immediately. Our theme tune is by the top band Polvo. Buy their music at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. New to Telegraph Sport and your ears is a brand new podcast celebrating England versus Australia. Ashes to Ashes reflects on one of the biggest rivalries in sport with exclusive interviews including Jeffrey Boycott, Jason Gillespie, Michael Vaughan and many more. Just head to your nearest podcasting service and click play. Simple, just like working out Duckworth Lewis.